Welcome back. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And this is Serial Banter. Today, we're going to be talking about Ted Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber. Aside from being a domestic terrorist and anarchist, he was also a math prodigy and a college professor at one point in his life. As time went on, Kaczynski decided to leave his life in the academic world for one of solitude away from other people and technology. In 1978, he began his long reign of terror that would plague people with fear and puzzle the FBI for years until he was arrested in April of 1996. Over the span of 17 years, he killed three people and injured 23 others by sending 16 untraceable homemade bombs that he built himself to random targets in an attempt to start a, quote, revolution against the industrial system. Ted managed to evade law enforcement while living in a 10 by 14 cabin that he built in the woods near Lincoln, Montana. Officers caught a break in 1995 when Kaczynski released his 35,000 word manifesto explaining his motives. The FBI decided to publish this essay with the hopes that someone would help identify this mystery terrorist. This is when Ted's brother, David Kaczynski, called in to tell them about his brother, Ted. Ted Kaczynski was born in Chicago, Illinois, to Wanda and Theodore Kaczynski, and is the oldest child between him and his brother, David. He was a bright child, according to his family, and was able to actually skip two grades early on in his education. Even though he was considered different from his classmates due to his age and intelligence, he was still active within the school, participating in German and chess clubs. At the age of 16, Ted was able to attend Harvard University on a scholarship. He mostly studied mathematics and was considered to be a math prodigy. Even during this time in his life, Ted was concerned about government and technology's impact on the environment and personal freedoms and liberties. During his time at Harvard, he participated in a psychological study or program led by Professor Henry H. Murray, which included hours of extensive verbal abuse. A lot of this study is still sealed, but what we do know is bad enough. Henry Murray was studying the effects of stress on the human psyche and how people would respond to harsh or enhanced interrogation techniques. This was during the time of the Cold War and was actually a very popular topic of research because of that. The objective was to pretty much humiliate and break down the participants of the study psychologically. This program was thought to have affected Ted significantly and played a role in his thought process later in life. Although Ted disagrees and has mentioned that while he does resent Murray and the others involved in the program, he is, quote, quite confident that my experiences with Professor Murray had no significant effect on the course of my life. There's actually a great article in The Atlantic called, quote, Harvard and the Making of the Unabomber. This article talks about the possible connection between these experiments and Ted's crimes. Also, if you're into conspiracy theory, some people believe that Henry Murray's work was actually tied to government research into mind control, which if, again, you're familiar with conspiracy theories, is called Project MKUltra, I believe. And as an aside, Henry Murray did have connections to the CIA and enhanced interrogation methods that were used particularly after 9-11 that don't work. Just putting that out there. I think they have really had something here. I think these advanced interrogations, <laughs> they really got something going. 
Ask the Iraqi detainees if they worked. I'm going to go with no, but that's a story for another day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, any psychiatrist will tell you this doesn't work, so don't there are many books written on it if you would like to not believe me and do your own research into it they don't work and this guy was a sadistic asshole is the bottom line pretty much strong feelings on this and he got awards for being a sadistic asshole yeah and to be honest like during this time period that these these like programs were going this was not uncommon having these completely unethical experiments taking place not uncommon so he wasn't the only one we're just highlighting his piece of shit studies today because they happen to help form and create a murderer who bombed random people and a domestic terrorist yes exactly so that tells you anything about the study there you go Mm mm-hmm Ted went on to earn his doctorate at the University of Michigan in 1967, then decided to move to the West Coast to teach at the University of California, Berkeley, becoming the youngest assistant professor of mathematics in the history of the school. His time at Berkeley didn't last long, though, and he suddenly quit his assistant professorship in 1969. Once Ted quit teaching at Berkeley, he began to establish a new life in isolation and shunned technology. By the early 1970s, he had built a cabin in the woods on a plot of land he had purchased with his brother and started growing his own vegetables and hunting rabbits to maintain his remote lifestyle. So just to get a better like mental picture for you about this cabin, like Em said in the beginning, it was 10 by 14 feet, which is basically the size of a backyard shed. And then the interior was extremely bare bones, again, like somebody's backyard shed. So essentially, he was living in your shed that you keep your lawnmower and other miscellaneous yard tools in. And like barely fit a lawnmower. (laughs) Right, right. Like we're talking about not even, you're not getting a riding mower in that sucker. No, no, no. Your push mower and like the shovels and rakes and stuff. And that's. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much all you're getting in there. So that's how he was living. No electricity, no running water. So to pass the time, Ted actually spent most of his time reading. This actually caused his dislike and distrust for the government and technology to grow. After a few years, Ted moved back to Chicago to work with his brother, David, at a factory where he began a relationship with a female coworker. But when she told him that she did not wish to see him socially anymore, Ted decided to retaliate by writing insulting and crude limericks about her and displaying them at work. This behavior led him to his dismissal from the factory. It was actually his brother, David, that had to make the decision and break the news to him. So now we're going to go into the actual bombings a little bit. And there were 16 bombs in total that the FBI were able to track back to the Unabomber. In 1978, the first of many bombs was delivered to Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. The package was left with a return address of an engineering professor named Buckley Christ, but he was suspicious of the package since he did not remember sending anything, so he called campus security. The package detonated and ended up injuring a campus security officer. 
The address was listed as E.J. Smith, a professor at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. But the intended target was Professor Christ. So the FBI later discovered that the Unabomber often addressed packages so that the return addressee is the person that receives the package. He would put like canceled stickers and things like that all over the packages so that these would most likely be returned to the person that quote unquote sent the package. But that wasn't always the case in all of his bombings. They didn't always make it back to the person that was on the return address. The following year, Ted built another bomb and left it at Northwestern University again, but this time planted it in a cigar box. This box was eventually opened by a grad student who sustained minor injuries. Following the falling out with his brother over his job at the factory and the semi-failed bomb attempts, Ted ended up moving back to Montana to live in his isolated cabin with no heat, no electricity, and no running water. He also had no car, so he'd either walk or bike anywhere he needed to go. Again, shunning all things technology and pretty much society. And he actually owned this plot of land with his brother. It was a little over an acre worth of land that they had bought together. But later, he actually filed paperwork in Montana to have his brother removed as a co-owner. At this point, Kaczynski decided to turn his attention to airlines, and in 1979, he mailed a bomb that was placed on an American Airlines Boeing 727. The bomb was built with a barometer to measure altitude and exploded at 34,500 feet. Smoke began to fill the cabin of the plane, and they were forced to make an emergency landing at Dulles Airport near D.C., Multiple passengers were treated for smoke inhalation, but thankfully, no one was seriously injured by the bomb. How freaking terrifying to be on a plane and have that happen, like smoke filling up the cabin and you don't have anywhere to flee. You're just kind of trapped in this like death tube. And you'd have to think, too, that these have to be your last moment. I I know if I was on a plane and it started filling up with smoke, that's exactly what would be going through my mind. This is why I don't fly. I mean, I still fly. Well, I haven't in a very long time, but (laughs) obviously, but this would terrify me. I think about this kind of stuff too, because it's always like during takeoff when you're like elevating through that, that something bad would happen. But also this kind of goes back during takeoff. This was like, they were already up there. No. Yeah. Well, I think you're still going up until you hit until you hit 35,000 feet I think I don't know I don't fly (laughs) I can't I can't remember it's been a really long time since I've been on on an airplane so if there's any pilots or flight attendants listening I'm very sorry but I think so but also it kind of goes back to show you how smart he actually was because he put a barometer on this thing to measure altitude that is That is crazy instead of just like having a bomb to go off. Right. And just the fact of being able to figure out yourself how to make these bombs. It's not like he had a manual or, you know, Google, since we're shunning technology to like look up how you would make these bombs. So then not only to be making these crude homemade bombs, but then to figure out how to attach a barometer for it to go off at a certain altitude. 
Exactly. I mean, he unfortunately used his brain in all of the worst ways because he could have done a lot with how brilliant he was. Yeah. The following year, a bomb was sent to the home of United Airlines President Percy Wood. Wood had been expecting a package, so when he opened the package and saw a book, he decided to open it, which initiated an explosion, causing him serious injuries on his face and thigh. The letters FC were etched into a metal piece of the bomb. So the Unabomber actually had a habit of leaving false clues in his bombs to throw off law enforcement, and FC ended up being one of those things that he signed his bombs with. The bombs were carefully constructed, and he was meticulous in not leaving any evidence behind. He would actually even rip the skins off of the batteries so you couldn't see the lot numbers and trace it back to where it was purchased. He also never left fingerprints on any of the materials, any hair evidence, anything. Also, rather than buying commercial glue, which he thought could be traced... He made his own glue by melting deer hooves, which I didn't even know that makes glue or an adhesive, I guess. I did. It's just very morbid and <laughs> gross. There's a documentary series on Netflix where they interview people that lived around Ted in Montana, in his cabin in Montana. And some said they knew Ted would rummage through stuff on their property, like abandoned cars or like work sheds and things like that. And as it turns out, he was actually taking things and making using those to make his bombs. The case's single eyewitness described a man in a hooded sweatshirt and sunglasses. And funny enough, they found the sweatshirt and the sunglasses in his bomb or in his cabin right. later on. The following year, federal investigators stepped in and began a Unabomb task force. So this story is really crazy to me. In the early 80s, the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit issued a psychological profile of the Unabomber. It said that the offender would be a man with above average intelligence with connections to academia, holding an academic degree in, quote, the hard sciences. Sound like anybody we know? But in 1983, they changed that profile because of the physical evidence found. And if you remember, he tried to throw investigators off with different things that he would leave behind in the, in the evidence. And so the new profile said that the offender was likely a blue-collar airplane mechanic. Between 1981 and 1982, Ted sent out three additional bombs. One to the University of Utah. This bomb was found and successfully diffused. Another to a professor at Pennsylvania State University. This package actually ended up being forwarded to Vanderbilt and was opened by a secretary. And the third bomb was sent to the University of California, Berkeley. While these packages did not kill anyone, they did seriously injure a few people. They were also able to identify the letters FC included on these bombs, just like the ones sent to the United Airlines president, Percy Wood. Things actually went quiet for a couple years until 1985, when a Berkeley graduate student and Air Force captain found a binder attached to a file box in the computer lab. This was actually the same place that the bomb went off in 1982. 
When he opened the binder, it exploded. This bomb was more powerful and caused more serious injuries. The victim of the 1982 bomb was across the hall when the bomb exploded and rushed in to help. One of the metal pins used in the bomb had the letters FC etched onto it. Can you imagine being the victim of a bomb and then a couple years later it happens again in the exact same place and then you run towards that bomb? I swear this guy deserves a medal. Yeah, I don't think I would be there after the first bomb. <laughs> like, I'm not working here anymore. I Yeah, I don't. one, I don't know that I'd go back. And two, if I went back, I think if I heard another bomb go off, I'd be paralyzed in fear. Oh, absolutely. So whoever that guy was, you deserve a medal. From June 1985 to February 1987, there were three more bombing attempts, one of which was unsuccessful due to male employees noticing the bomb and calling in the bomb squad to defuse it. Unfortunately, the other two bombs did go off, one of them killing Hugh Scrutton, the owner of a computer store in Sacramento, and the other seriously injuring Gary Wright, vice president of Cam's Inc., which was also a computer store in Salt Lake City, Utah. A secretary there saw a man with a mustache and a sweatshirt placing what appeared to be two two-by-four pieces of wood nailed together, which actually turned out to be the bomb, next to a car. The employee's description is then used in a police sketch that is widely used. This is actually the police sketch that was circulated everywhere at the time. News outlets, newspapers, everywhere had this picture posted. So we'll actually go ahead and post that on our Instagram so you guys can see what we're talking about. So the Unibomb attacks appear to stop until 1993, which really puzzles investigators. What they didn't know was that Kaczynski was actually reaching out to mental health professionals during this time. But he tells these professionals that he would prefer to converse through letters instead of in person. In October 1991, Ted's father shot and killed himself in the family home in Chicago while Ted's mom and his brother David were in another room. About nine months after his father took his own life, Kaczynski writes another letter to seek some sort of counseling. In this letter, he details his lack of friends and an absence of social contact, as well as describing a perceived lack of social skills, self-confidence, and other traits that led to his isolation. And this actually makes me really sad that he, like, clearly tried to reach out for help and something just didn't connect like he's already done all this damage but i don't know it is sad in a way because obviously this is a person that clearly needed the help and he did try in his own way to reach out to somebody but especially at that time it was one it was harder to get mental professional help anyway but also he wanted to only converse through letters he didn't want to see anybody in person so it did make what was already difficult then almost impossible oh absolutely it's just it's interesting because you know as a kid who like skipped two grades he already dealt with feelings of lacking social skills there's lack of self-confidence like he was extremely intelligent but he didn't have a lot of friends because he was two years behind everybody in his class exactly then he goes through this like traumatic study by this psychopathic doctor and now he's like realizing that he doesn't have these social skills doesn't have self-confidence and is isolated and needs social contact and so he's trying to reach out for help and still doesn't get it yeah unfortunately 
he didn't get it because maybe that could have turned some stuff around. But in 1993, he allegedly transported several bombs from Montana to Sacramento. And then in June of 1993, Kaczynski allegedly mailed a bomb to Dr. Charles Epstein, a geneticist at the University of California, San Francisco. He also mails a similar bomb to Dr. David Galenter, a computer science professor at Yale University. One package arrives at Epstein's house. When one of the packages arrived at Dr. Epstein's house, his daughter brought it inside and left it on the kitchen counter. Later that day, Dr. Epstein opened the package and it exploded, causing him a broken arm, abdominal trauma, and the loss of several fingers. The bomb sent to Dr. Glenters explodes when he opens it, causing him to lose sight in one eye, hearing in one ear, and the loss of part of his right hand. Shortly after the bombing, the switchboard at the Veterans Affairs Medical Center received a call saying, you're next. The same day, Warren Hodge, who is the assistant managing editor for the New York Times, receives a letter mailed from FC. The letter specified a nine-digit number in social security format. So the number was 553-25-4394, which the letter said will be used to authenticate future communications from FC. Can you imagine if that's your social? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Or even just like the last four numbers, you gotta be like, oh, fuck. I mean, it's a pretty clever way to get, to like go about that. So you don't have to worry about imposters writing in. Yeah, that's true. Like here, serial killer, let me give you your own social security number. This is my social security number and this is my serial killer social security <laughs> In December of 1994, a bomb exploded outside the home of Thomas Moser, the executive vice president of the advertising firm Young and Rubicam. Moser is killed in the explosion when he opens the package. Kaczynski allegedly mailed a bomb to William Dennison, the former president of the California Forestry Association. But instead of reaching Dennison, the package goes to Gilbert Murray, who is Dennison's successor as president. And when he opens the package, the bomb goes off and he is killed. From late April 1995 to September of 1995, Kaczynski sent numerous letters to people as FC, including one to David Galenter, the victim of the 1993 bomb. His letter said, people with advanced degrees aren't as smart as they think they are. If you'd had any brains, you would have realized that there are a lot of people out there who resent bitterly the way techno nerds like you are changing the world and you wouldn't have been dumb enough to open an unexpected package from an unknown source. Letters also went out to scientists, journalists, and other executives with messages such as, it would be beneficial to your health to stop your research in genetics. Letters also went out to scientists, journalists, and other executives with messages such as, quote, it would be beneficial to your health to stop your research in genetics, and also claimed to be a part of an anarchist group aiming to, quote, break down all society into very small, completely autonomous units. The letters also mention aspects of the explosive devices. In June of 1995, Ted sent out letters to different media outlets demanding that they print his manifesto titled The Industrial Society and Its Future. He actually said in the letters that he would, quote, desist from terrorism 
if they did, and attempted to justify the bombings by saying that they would essentially bring attention to the subject he was talking about in his manifesto. The media outlets debated the ethics of publishing, but eventually, with the strong encouragement of the United States Attorney General, decided to go ahead and do it. The FBI and the U.S. Attorney wanted it published so that hopefully someone would read it and recognize the voice of the author and turn them in. The 35,000-word essay, again called The Industrial Society and Its Future, blames technology for destroying the human race. Basically, technology is evil. We don't control technology. It controls us. He blamed technological progress for the downfall of small communities and the rise of big, uninhabitable cities that are controlled by a big government that is accountable to no one. He wrote that technological advances would destroy nature and suppress people's individual freedoms, and that this would lead to expanded police powers, mass media, and increased promotion of drugs. And that what we needed to do was disband our technological system and go back to basically living off the earth in small tribe-like communities. If you want to read more about the manifesto and his beliefs, I again really recommend the article we mentioned before published by The Atlantic called Harvard and the Making of the Unabomber by Alston Chase. In short, it was very libertarian philosophy before it was popular to be libertarian. But I'll be honest, looking back at the manifesto through like the lens of the world that we live in now, I don't necessarily disagree with his overarching arguments. Like horrible to kill people and blow stuff up, but he's not wrong. I mean, he does make a valid point. He just went in a horribly wrong way of trying to get that point across to other people. Yeah, I mean... I guess he did end up bringing attention to it, but I feel like in his mind, he was bringing attention and he really wanted people to listen. But now it's just like, this is just the crazy ramblings of a psychotic bomber. Well, yes and no, though, because what's really interesting when you watch that four part documentary on Netflix, they talk about the last part of the fourth episode. They talk about the impact he's had, particularly in environmentalist groups where they kind of idolize him and what he was preaching and all of these things. So I think in the wider culture, yeah, it's like the mad ravings of, you know, this domestic terrorist who lived in a shed, but within certain pockets, I think his teachings or what he believed are still pretty popular. And people, I, I think, look back again through the lens of the world that we live in now and say like, oh shit, he was kind of on to something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think you you can kind of be both at the same time. I think there oh, they yeah. are ravings of a lunatic and then <laughs> there's also some pretty good points thrown in there. So yeah. I, I think it's a little bit of both. Absolutely. The FBI received thousands and thousands of tips after the New York Times and the Washington Post published his manifesto. FBI profiler James R. Fitzgerald, a specialist in linguistics who has been working on the Unabomber case since 1995, was studying the linguistics of the manifesto. The FBI received thousands and thousands of tips after the New York Times and Washington Post published the manifesto. 
FBI profiler James R. Fitzgerald, a specialist in linguistics who had been working on the Unabomber case since 1995, was studying the linguistics of the manifesto. I won't go into too much detail about the how of what he did, because honestly, I'm not that smart. But you can read all about it in his book called A Journey to the Center of the Mind, again, by James R. Fitzgerald, if that's something that interests you or the science of linguistics is something that interests you. But he was able to pick out certain dialect traits or idiosyncrasies that led him to believe that the Unabomber was from the Chicago, Illinois area. He also noted that the same way the Unabomber was obsessive when it came to making sure he left no traceable evidence, he was just as meticulous in how he wrote his letters and manifestos. The task force set up to find the Unabomber received tons of tips from people thinking they knew who the Unabomber was. People would send in writings from the person they suspected it to be, and James Fitzgerald would compare those writings to the manifesto and previous letters they knew were from the Unabomber and decide whether or not the writing styles were the same. Now, backing up a bit, prior to the manifesto being released, Ted's brother David's wife actually had suspicions that Ted could be the Unabomber and had encouraged him to call the FBI. But David just kind of brushed this off, telling her Ted wouldn't hurt a fly. But once he read the published manifesto, he really began to believe that his brother could be the Unabomber. And David has said in interviews that it definitely sounded like Ted when he read it. There were even phrases in the manifesto that Ted had used in letters written to David. There was one phrase in particular in the manifesto calling modern philosophers cool-headed logicians that David immediately recognized as something Ted had written to him. So David hired a lawyer and through the lawyer contacted the FBI. The attorney on David's behalf provided the FBI writings from Ted to compare to the manifesto. And James Fitzgerald said that the document and of course the format matched, but it was a document that was basically the outline of the manifesto. It was written in the same chronological order. A lot of the same terms were used, etc. Because of the fact that they had no concrete evidence to get a search warrant for Ted's property, and then arrest him for the bombings, they had to rely on the linguistic analysis. But linguistic analysis was not really a thing at the time. So John Fitzgerald was putting together all of these blocks of similar phraseology, but no word-for-word matches in Ted's known earlier writings and the Unabomber Manifesto. And it seemed to be a bit flimsy for a search warrant. But then he found something that would get them exactly what they needed. In the manifesto, there was a phrase that really stood out to John Fitzgerald, where Kaczynski said, you can't eat your cake and have it too, which is obviously not the typical way of saying that phrase. And then Fitzgerald found a letter to an editor of a magazine from Ted Kaczynski that said at the very end, you can't eat your cake and have it too. Because of this word for word match, they were able to get the warrant to search Ted's property. FBI agents arrested Ted Kaczynski on April 3rd, 1996. In his cabin, he had a bomb that was already ready to be mailed, a bunch of bomb components, thousands and thousands of journal entries, writings on his bomb-making experiments, journal entries describing his crimes, and the original typed manuscript of Industrial Society and its Future. In one of his journals, Ted had each bomb he made listed out as a numbered experiment. Kaczynski's legal team tried to have him declared mentally incompetent after having him diagnosed as schizophrenic. 
which he did not agree with at all. He tried to have his attorneys removed because he didn't want this insanity defense used, thinking it would take away from his message and cause. In the end, he pleaded guilty to 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs on January 22nd, 1998, to avoid the death penalty. He was given eight life sentences without the possibility of parole. He is currently serving his sentence at the Supermax facility in Florence, Colorado. Ted was said to be absolutely devastated by the fact that his brother turned him in. When he was initially told, he didn't actually believe it. David has written Ted a letter per month since he has been incarcerated, and Ted has yet to write back. That actually makes me so sad because David was actually really, really conflicted about whether to turn Ted in or not. In interviews that I've seen him do, he talks about like the internal struggle of if he weren't to turn Ted in and somebody else were to die, then he would have the blood of those other people on his hands. But at the same time, knowing that Ted had killed three people and would likely get the death penalty, he had to deal with the guilt of potentially turning his brother over to be executed or life imprisonment. You can still see in interviews, you can still see the pain on his face. Oh, absolutely. And it never goes away. You can see the guilt. You can see the conflict. It's just, it's been so many years. And even in any kind of interview he's done that I've seen, you just see it all over him that he's still conflicted by it today, which of course you would be. I mean, I think most people who have a loving relationship with their siblings or family members at all would be completely conflicted with having to do this. Yeah. And then on top of that, like they were raised so close, like in one interview that I saw, um, David said that at some point in his life, his mother told him, I think something like to never turn his back on his brother or never abandon his brother. And so then like the guilt of that and then having to do this thing that would be perceived as him turning on his brother and then trying to reach out over and over and over again. And Ted basically like cutting him off completely, I imagine has to be just devastating to him. I know that's so sad. And I think the mental health aspect of it, it, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around being David because you know, you know, your brother's mentally unwell and you want to be there for him and you want to support him as much as you can through this. And then also just being cut off despite you trying to reach out and really trying to be there for him. That just has to be really tough. Yeah. Well, that is all we have for you guys for this episode. Next week, we'll be talking about Alexis Murphy. Alexis was a 17-year-old high school student from a small town in central Virginia who went missing on her way to go shopping for her senior pictures. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a review, preferably a nice one, to make it easier for people to find our podcast. And if you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Instagram at Serial Banter Podcast, or you can even send us an email at SerialBanterPodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments about the case or even suggestions on things you want to hear from us in the future, we would love to hear from you guys. You can go ahead and leave a comment, send us a message, whatever you want. We will see you next week. Bye. 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 <laughs>